Hi, I'm Pastor Joel with Right Response Ministries, and you're listening to Theology Applied. In this episode, I was privileged to have two special guests, Joshua Lewis and Michael Roundtree, the co-host of Remnant Radio. Now, this was a two-part conversation between the co-host of Remnant Radio on the Nephilim, the Sons of God, and the application for Christians today. In part one, which is what you're listening to now, we deal with who are the Nephilim and who are the sons of God. In part two, we deal with the relevancy of the Nephilim and the sons of God for Christians today. Applying God's Word to every aspect of life. This is Theology Applied. All right, so today's episode, I am privileged to have as a special guest two individuals, Michael Roundtree and Joshua Lewis. They are co-hosts of a show called Remnant Radio, and Remnant Radio is a, a really great show where they talk about all sorts of theological topics, and they have people from all over the map. So there's guys that we would disagree with, and there's guys that we would agree with, and they have, of course, their own theological system, their own theological convictions, and they intentionally do that because one of their concerns is that there are sometimes echo chambers in the body of Christ theologically where uh, we just hear from the same people again and again who already believe all the things that we believe, and so they want to disrupt echo chambers, and so um, I appreciate uh, their ministry. I've learned a lot um, from uh, watching their show, and so I'm pleased to have them as guests. Josh and Michael, do you want to take a moment and introduce yourselves? You want, you want to go first? Or you want to, I'll let you go. Okay. Thank you for letting me. I yeah, appreciate you, that. So my name is Michael Roundtree, and uh, I'm a lead pastor at a church called Wellspring Church, and uh, it's in North Fort Worth, one of the suburbs of Fort Worth, and I've been the pastor there since 2012. And I'm also a co-host on Remnant Radio, theology podcast that Joel just talked about. Uh, Josh started the podcast about four years ago, and then I hopped on a year and a half uh, or so ago. And uh, yeah, I have a wife of 17 years and four kids, Anna Hudson, Will, and Molly. Yeah, uh, today was first day of school for my kids, so uh, seven, five, and four, um, uh, Josie is my wife. We've been married for eight, nine years now, nine years now. Um, Come on, man. Trouble. Come on. And uh, yeah, uh, started Remnant Radio back in July of 20, was it 27? Not 2017 is too late. 2019 is where? No. 2021 minus four. 2017. It was 2017. Okay. So uh, 2017. I'm a math uh, guy. Yeah. And then uh, we're, 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 to Joel's point, we are charismatic, but we interview people all we prefer the term the continuationist. We're continuationists yeah. because, yeah, the word charismatic, you think of Benny Hinn slapping people with coats, and then you say Pentecostal, and you think second blessing in tongues. So we just say, hey, we believe in the gifts. Uh, so we're, we're trying to get into a space where, like, hey, let's, let's help charismatics think critically and think well about a robust Christian faith. So we interview pastors and teachers from all over the place from different churches and doc, uh, uh, denominations. We, we prefer if they have a, you know, a PhD in front of their name. Uh, we, we like to have like those kinds of heady conversations from a kind of a charismatic slant, I would say. Um, today we're talking about Nephilim. And I, I suppose <laughs> because we're charismatic, we talk about angels, but this isn't, this isn't like our bread and butter. Uh, but, but we know some guys, we've done a couple of shows on, on Nephilim and Elohim and those kinds of things. So uh, and yeah, to, I'm excited to be about fair. today's conversation. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming on. To be fair, I was going to say, I'm the guy who picked the topic. So I picked the, you know, the yeah, fallen angels right. and the Nephilim and the relevancy for Christians today. And it is worth saying that um, Michael and I actually have, have been friends for, I guess, 
I, I think like 12, 13 years now. Um, I, I think I met you, Michael. So probably 12 years. I think it was like one year after uh, you got married. And so, or maybe two years yeah. after you got married, but it was back in 2007. So you're the math guy. Yeah. Can you do that I real quick? I turned you into a Calvinist, man. Yeah, Michael turned me into a Calvinist, and then he abandoned. You know, it's kind of. Oh, the prodigal son has returned. And then he I has returned. Abandon. Yeah, I never. Election. I would never say I abandoned. I would say <laughs> I spent a year calling myself soteriologically homeless. So maybe yeah. you call that abandonment. He pitched his tent just south of Sodom. Oh. He, was, he wasn't quite in it. He was just south of it. Oh yeah. no. <laughs> You know, yeah. uh, my mentor, Jack Deere, one of the things that he taught me was uh, never allow your system to force you into an, uh, an interpretation that seems to violate uh, just the, the flow of the text, a specific text and yeah. a specific text. And so, right. you know, and honestly, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So to be frank, there are some texts that sound non-Calvinist and even uh, would, as though they would go against Calvinism, but uh you know, I spent that year really searching and just uh, at, at the end of it, I, I came back to this place of like, you know, there are some texts that seem to go both ways, but I'm just kind of uh, going with like the broader picture and scope of scripture. So that's what I went with. Right. No, that's not what we're talking about. So no, no, that's good. And I remember you said that one of, one of the points that was just kind of irrefutable was election. It's hard to get away from election. That's, so yes, agreed. it is. That's a, that's Amen a big that. one. So anyways, for those who don't know, I, you know, me and Michael, we go way back and I was actually a part of Wellspring. So his church, he was the youth pastor at the time. I was a part of the church and then I left uh, when I finished my undergrad at Dallas Baptist abandoned, University. Abandoned, I think, would be the right yeah, word. Abandoned, I abandoned Michael. <laughs> I held on to Calvinism. Um, I held on to John Calvin and I let go of Michael Roundtree and I moved to, uh, to California, planted a church there, was there for 11 years and then came back. And in regards to the continuationist uh, thing, so Jack Deere, he already mentioned, um, he was the pastor of the church when I was there. Michael was his youth pastor. And so just for those of you who are maybe not super familiar with the continuation, there's just a wide spectrum. You know, you've got false teachers um, that are crazy charismatics with the $70 million jet planes and all that. But then you also have um, the reasonable continuationists. That would be guys like John Piper, Wayne Grudem, Sam Storms. And you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but is it fair to put you in kind of a Sam Storms continuationist camp? Yeah, yep. that would be fair. Yeah, no, we'll call a careful continuationist. Guys like Keener, Grudem, Storms, Jack Deere. Yeah, yeah those guys. they've all been on the show a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so Michael, Michael made me a Calvinist. Michael also gave me training in uh, prophecy and uh, Michael abandoned Calvinism and I abandoned prophecy. <laughs> so, so I ended up becoming a cessationist and, and still am a, a proud cessationist. And Michael left Calvinism, but he came back and I have not yet come back. And I'm so sure that you're praying for me to follow the to pattern. Come back. Follow just the pattern. <laughs> so, he needs a prophetic word anyways. to come back. So anyway, so my, no, I need, I need scripture and I know you guys have plenty of it. So anyways, all that being said, Here we go. Uh, I, I say that to be fair because both Josh and Michael love the scripture. And honestly, the, the yes. last thing I'll say before we hop into our topic is, uh, I, Michael was one of the first people I met who, um, who strived more than anyone I knew at the time to memorize the Bible. And so for every, every ounce of effort that he put towards, you know, getting prophetic words, um, I, I saw him 
put 10 times as much energy in memorizing the scripture, applying the scripture, preaching the scripture, mm. expositional preaching. And he's did that when I knew him and was mentored by him and has done that for the last 13 years and still does that faithfully. So Amen. all that being yeah. said, um, I'm really grateful for both of you guys and especially you, Michael, just because of our, our prior relationship and you've meant a lot to me. So thank you for that. Yeah, all right. So let's go ahead and yeah, you're welcome. So let's go ahead and hop in. So this is the text that I want us to work for, from. I know that there are a few that deal with fallen angels, uh, the sons of God, the Nephilim. And what we're going to try to do towards the end of this episode is make it relevant, right? So that we don't just have, you know, uh, bringing all the wacko boys to the yard with uh, Nephilim talks on YouTube. Uh, mm-hmm. But, that, you know, but that it actually is applicable and relevant. You know, what, what does this idea of the Nephilim have to do with Christians today? What can we learn from this? Uh, how, how can we apply this in our daily Alive. So we're going to do that towards the end of the episode, but let's start by just getting um, a framework. And so there's a lot of text, but the text that I want to work from is this Genesis chapter six, verses one through eight. So this is kind of our, our, our foundational text. It says this, when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives, any they chose. The Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old or renowned, some translations say the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So I've written a few, few notes here in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 39. Jesus says for the coming of the son of man, that's speaking of himself, Uh, will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the son of man be. Also, first Peter chapter three, verse 20 says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons were brought safely through water. So according to both Jesus and Peter, the people of Noah's day chose to ignore God's warnings of judgment until eventually it was too late. In today's text, we see the progression in this text, Genesis chapter six, the progression of sin as it relates, not just to individuals. Uh, One of the things I find helpful about the Genesis six passage is it shows a progression of sin as it relates to societies and cultures and even nations. Sin begins with compromise. It moves to corruption and ultimately it ends in God's just judgment. So in verse Verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 6, it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the earth, um, the face of the land, the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. They took as wives any that they chose. Now, the debate over this text, who are the sons of God? That's the first question we got to get to. Um, this is a, a century, centuries and centuries old debate. There are three main views uh, that I'm familiar with. The first is that the sons of God were powerful rulers, princes, um, likely possessed by demons, demon possessed, who were striving for fame and glory through the means of mass fertility. 
that they had many wives and they were trying to have many, 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 many sons, many offsprings uh, to basically cause their name to be essentially immortal. Um, occasionally in the Bible, the Hebrew word Elohim, or Josh, before we got started, he, he insisted that we say Elohim to be go. accurate. Um, but it was a, it's a name for God. Um, and so in the Hebrew Bible, the word, the Hebrew word Elohim uh, is used for men in positions of authority. That would be like Exodus chapter 21, verse 6, or Psalm chapter 82, verse 1 and verse 6. In this view, the daughters of men would refer to all daughters. So all the women who were on the earth at this time, they were being taken as wives um, by these powerful rulers or princes, sons of rulers, possessed by demons, trying to have many offspring to further their line and make themselves immortal. That's the first view of the sons of God. All right. The second view is that the sons of God refer to the godly descendants of Seth who called upon the name of the Lord, which we see in Genesis chapter four, verse 26 and chapter five. Uh, we see the genealogy, um, uh, Genesis chapter five, the genealogy of Seth. In this view, the daughters of men would refer to the ungodly women, most likely from the line of Cain who went out from the presence of the Lord. That's what the Bible says about Cain and his offspring in Genesis chapter four, verse 16 through 24. Now Luke, um, in the new Testament, he traces the line of Christ back through Seth all the way to Adam. And he calls Adam the son of God. That's Luke chapter three, verse 38. Thus Adam's descendants through Seth are the sons of God, according to this view, who became corrupt through sinful compromise in marriage. They chose to marry on the basis of sexual attraction rather than on the basis of godly character and a godly lineage. The result was the compromise of godly standards, which led to the corruption um, and ultimately condemnation of the entire human race. The third view of the sons of God is that the sons of God refer to fallen angels or demons who came to earth in human form and cohabitated with women, uh, human women, resulting in a superhuman race called the Nephilim. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. Uh, proponents of this view argue that Satan was attempting and I like this. He was attempting to use these fallen angels to thwart God's promise to bring a deliverer through the seed of the woman uh, by corrupting the line of Adam. So that's what the first kind of expression of the gospel that we see in Genesis chapter 3 when God's dealing out the curses to, to uh, Adam and to the woman, uh, Eve, and to the serpent. Uh, we see that even in God's judgment, there's this, I, I like to call it an Easter egg and and, and a Reformed Baptist covenantal theology of the gospel, the Proto-Evangelium. How, how do you say that, guys? Can you help me with that? That's right. Proto? Uh, I, I always called it the Proto-Evangelium, but Evangelium probably. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, well, it's, it's one of those. Proto <laughs> means before, Evangelion, the, the, the message, the gospel, the good news, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. And so in that, what we see is God says, he promises the woman that, that that her, there's going to be, well, at first it doesn't really sound like a blessing or a promise. It sounds like part of the curse. And it is, he says, there's going to be this seemingly unending enmity between your offspring and the offspring of the serpent. So he basically, the first promise that God gives is there's going to be a endless war. war. 
right? There's just going to be this endless war. Um, but what he ultimately promises is that the serpent is going to strike the heel of one of the woman's offspring, the seed of the woman, but that he will have the final victory blow in crushing the serpent's head. And so Adam and Eve were saved as, as all Christians are saved before or after the cross, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They knew Christ as the serpent crusher, and they put faith in Jesus, and they were saved by grace through faith in Christ's work, which would come later. They looked forward to the Messiah and knew him as the serpent crusher. And so in all of that, um, the point is that multiple times throughout the Old Testament, one of the things that we see is we see the line, this lineage of the woman that's eventually going to bring the serpent crusher, uh, the promised seed, the promised offspring that's going to crush the head of the serpent. We see multiple attempts of Satan influencing or downright possessing wicked men on earth in order to try to end the line. And so, for instance, uh, Herod trying to wipe out um, all, all the children in Bethlehem, or Pharaoh, uh, same kind of thing with the, uh, the Hebrew boys, um, or, or according to this view, the sons of God, fallen angels trying to dilute and, and pervert um, the, the biological line of human women uh, so that there would not be a pure seed of, of the serpent crusher, the, the, the promised seed, the offspring, that, that fallen angels stepping out of heaven, taking on human form, marrying human women, and trying to pervert that, that messianic line. So the strongest argument for this view is that every other time the term son of God or sons of God is used in the Bible, it always refers to angels, which is pretty compelling. Job chapter one, uh, Job chapter two, Job chapter 38, uh, Daniel chapter three, Psalm chapter 29 and Psalm chapter 89. Uh, so in this view, the daughters of men would not just refer to the daughters of Cain, uh, but the daughters of both Cain and Seth, all human women and uh, the sons of God refer to uh, not human men, but rather uh, fallen angels. And so uh, last thing I want to say, just setting the stage verse four of our text it mentions the nephilim uh, those who hold to the view that the sons of god referred to fallen angels uh, say that the nephilim were an ancient race of giants originated uh, from the union of fallen angels and the daughters of men the word nephilim only appears one other time in scripture that's numbers 13 verse 33 uh, there the israelite spies reported that they had seen the nephilim and that they felt small in comparison to them like grasshoppers the word comes from a root word meaning um, to fall upon. It points to men of great violence, physical violence, who had a reputation of falling upon their enemies without mercy. These men may or may not have been physical giants who descended from fallen angels. The point is that they were vicious men with an insatiable bloodlust who would slaughter others just for sport. Therefore, we are meant to assume that the generation at the time of the flood was notorious for a host of sins, but especially the sin of violence. Uh, Genesis chapter 6 verse 13. This explanation of the Nephilim is further confirmed by God's evaluation of that generation found in verse 5 of Genesis 6 that says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 5 is God's description of the extreme corruption of that generation. Due to God's common grace... Sin does not always reach the outward manifestations that it did in the days of Noah. However, 
I've got to say this as somebody who believes in total depravity. However, at the level of the heart, the unbeliever in our day is no less wicked than the unbelievers at the time of the flood. So I believe that Genesis chapter six, verse five is an accurate description of, of the unbeliever in the heart, the sinfulness of their heart, even today. However, the difference is in Noah's day, uh, that, that it wasn't just, um, every thought and every intention of their heart, only evil continually. Um, but, but for me, I take that to mean that, that in the days of Noah, um, that it wasn't just, this is, is the level of depravity inwardly in the heart, but, but that God's common grace had lifted in such a way that, that, that the intentions of the heart were being outwardly manifest, especially in sinful acts of violence and murder. And so God, um, he, he wiped Joel. everyone out except for Noah and his wife, sons, and their wives. So that's, that's my foundation. Josh, uh, you obviously you're, you're you chomping a at the bit, question. so go for it. No, I just want to clarify a question. When you said um, uh, that they're just as depraved as we are today, in a, in a Calvinistic perspective of total depravity, which I would actually affirm that um, the total depravity means that we that our entire being is um, as corrupted as it as it, like every being every part of our being has been affected by sin. We're total yeah, the yeah. totality of us has been affected. Not that we Not are utter. as sinful as we'll ever be. Utter right. utter depravity. Not so you're making depravity. that distinction. So they would you say that they were utterly depraved uh, no, in a because- way that maybe we're not? I just want to just clarify. I would, yeah, no, that's a great question. So total depravity, exactly what you said. It means that, that every part of, of humanity is marred by sin. Um, and just for the record, in, in the Calvinistic perspective, we do not believe that, um, that Christians are totally depraved. And that's a mistake that I, I, I made in my early Calvinist days. And I still hear people in the Reformed camp that, you know, they're new and they're super excited about the tulip. They're leaving tulips at, at John Wesley's, you know, gravesite, you know, and so, you know, the, the cage Calvinist. And, and they talk, you were totally depraved. And, but then they talk about themselves in that light. And it's like, no, if you're, if you're born again, you're not totally depraved. You're not. You are, are, are a new creation. In your inner being, you delight in the law of God. Something has actually changed. So I don't believe the Christian is even totally depraved. And the unbeliever, I don't believe, is utterly depraved. And I personally don't believe that there's ever been um, a man on earth that has been utterly depraved in, in the fullest extent. But I do, to answer your question, Josh, I do think that that generation in the days of Noah, that the unbeliever, um, which would have been all of them except for Noah and his family, that the unbeliever in those days was further down down the path of utter depravity um, than, than mm. generations today. However, I don't think that it's unique to Noah in the sense, uh, his day, um, in the sense that, that that could never happen again or that that hasn't uh, happened, at least in part. Um, so I, I would look at the Third Reich and I, I would look at Adolf Hitler and Mussolini and Joseph Stalin and, and I would say um, the, this is what happens in societies when, when God's law is, is ultimately abandoned in the three uses of God's law. The second use is that the law of God has a common grace function that, that works even for the unbeliever as a shield that holds outward expressions, outward manifestations of that inward total depravity at bay, right? That there are people who, who are unbelievers, they're totally depraved um, in, in their heart. So every intention of their heart is only evil continually. And yet, because of the law of God adopted and executed through societies um, and, and legislation and, and governing civil authorities, um, there are people who would want to murder but, but are restrained in actually carrying that act out due to fear. 
not love of God, but, but fear of the civil magistrate. And so I do think that there have been societies since the days of Noah and that we can track through human history where I would say, yeah, they looked a lot like Noah. They were savage. They were barbaric. Um, they, uh, they, they were violent. They were physically violent. I would say Nineveh. So Nineveh, you know, they, they used to fillet their victims alive is, is, is what most historians say. And they would hang the skins of the people that they filleted on the walls of Nineveh. And, and when the king of Nineveh repents and calls the whole king of the whole nation to repentance at the preaching of Jonah, um, that's specifically what's mentioned in the book of Jonah is that he says, we must repent of our violence. And, and, and so violence, physical violence is always seems to be emphasized as a further progression towards that, that utter depravity. It seems to be the case in the days of Noah, and it seems to be the, uh, the case in the days of Nineveh when Jonah went and preached uh, repentance to them. It seems to be the case uh, in, in the days of, of World, World War One and Two and certain nations. And, and so, um, so I, I do think that totally depraved, Unbelievers are totally depraved. That means inwardly, all they want to do is rebel against God. Um, but that's different than utter depravity because somebody can rebel against God by being nice. But it's still, right. but they're still ultimately rebelling against right. God. It's, it's that classic Augustinian position of a, a, a sinner cannot do good. A saint can choose not to do bad and can choose to do good. And a glorified believer cannot do bad, right? Like exactly. when we get exactly. to new. So it's, it's, a, it's that classic Augustinian historic Protestant faith. Yep. So that, I just wanted to make that clear that like that, that Genesis six, five, I think is an accurate description of the human heart, not merely in the days of Noah, but in all ages. Um, but it's an accurate description of the human heart for the unredeemed, for the unbeliever. Um, I do not believe that Christians are totally depraved. And what's unique about the days of Noah, although I do think there have been other time periods and other cultures that have been similar to, the, to those people in the days of Noah, is that it's not just total depravity, um, intentions and thoughts of the heart, but because that second use of God's law has been lifted, his common grace has been lifted, God handing people over, Romans 1, handing them over to their evil, um, the, the, the total depravity intentions in the heart begin to manifest in actions outwardly. And I, I think the chief action being violence. And, and so I think that, that the people in the days of Noah were uniquely violent. Um, however, I do think there have been cultures and nations and time periods where we're at least close to that level of violence has, has also been achieved. And, and God, maybe not through a worldwide flood, or definitely not through a worldwide flood, but through other means, God has wiped people out. He has corrected that in his mercy. Um, so anyway, so that, that's it. So what, so what do you guys think? Who are the cool. sons of God? Which view would you guys take? Who are the Nephilim? Go ahead and take it. Okay. So you put out there three options for who uh, the Nephilim is. And, and I would say uh, they are really... Uh, Okay, actually, to back up, you, you gave three options for who the sons of God are. To answer who the Nephilim are, we have to talk about who the sons of God are, mm -hmm. uh, because the two are related, and you gave three potential options for who the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 might be, uh, the sons of princes, or the sons of Seth and ruling angels. And of these three, yes, those are the three that have historically been put out there, but the first one no modern commentary. Uh, I, I haven't read any modern commentaries that believe that. They, they all seem to think that it was a stretch. dying position. Uh, it's, a, it's a dying position. Um, Sons of Seth and ruling angels. And, and even before I say what I'm about to say, uh, I think I would say this. In my opinion, 
the only reason to reject that the sons of God are ruling angels, part of this divine council of God, is not for exegetical reasons, but because it's really weird that angels would have sex with human women. Like, that's just weird. And, uh, but the reality is, Nephilim are weird, <laughs> right? The, which is the product of that. Like, that's already weird. And there's just some weird stuff in the Bible. Uh, but I don't think we can outright reject something just because it's weird, and especially when there's really strong exegetical evidence the other way. So uh, I, I think that what really nails it for this is something you said, Joel, that every other instance in the Bible where sons of God is used, it's speaking of these angelic beings. It's not talking about uh, sons of Seth. It's talking about these angelic beings. So we, we need to have overwhelming evidence to overturn the way sons of God is used every other single time in the Bible. And we don't have that overwhelming evidence. In fact, we seem to have evidence going in the opposite direction. Uh, take, for instance, uh, the let me just reread verses one and two. Uh, you guys just pay attention to the usage of the phrase daughter, uh, daughters or word daughters. OK, so it's going to appear in verses one and in two. And if you believe in the sons of Seth theory, this idea that like, well, you have the two lines, you have the unbelieving wicked line of Cain and the believing blessed line of Seth, and the, and the position states that the sons of Seth, uh, they mixed the line by sleeping with Cain's daughters, right? The Cainite women. So the believers and the unbelievers got married, and it polluted the line. Now, on the surface, this might seem feasible. Again, we're going against the fact that sons of God is never used to speak of sons of Seth. But notice this word daughters, verses one and two. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Does it say Canaanite daughters? Unbelieving, wicked, evil daughters. It just says daughters. Everyone agrees that daughters in verse one is general, not restricted to Canaanite daughters. Now verse two. And the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took the wives of any they chose. Doesn't it make sense that if daughters is general in verse one, that it's also general in verse two, speaking of just daughters of women. But if you hold to the sons of Seth theory, you have to say, well, in verse one, it is general. But in verse two, it's a specific kind of daughter of man. It's Canaanite daughters. But that's even doubly hard because uh, not only does it violate the context of verse one, that it's general. He actually generalizes it with an adjective, a descriptor, where he calls them daughters of man. doesn't say daughters of Cain. And so to me, when you put the direct context of Genesis 6, 1 to 2, that you're asking me to restrict the meaning of daughters to mean only Cain's unbelieving wicked daughters, that's the first part. And then two, to ignore that sons of God always in the scripture means some kind of angelic celestial being, uh, that's just too much. So I've chosen to accept the fact that something really weird happened, and that is that some kind of angelic being uh, slept with human women. And I would be willing to say, and I mean, Michael, differ on many of our positions, I would be willing to say that the Ben Elohim in, in Genesis uh, chapter 6 are, in fact, some kind of supernatural divine being when i say divine i don't mean in the sense of god but in the sense of uh, angelic spiritual being um and i think that we can actually prove that in like jude 
uh, verses five through seven. Um, but but as guys, so kind are of you about to say something I disagree with? Because no, no, no. I think I, I agree with say, this. I was going to say when it comes to the Nephilim particularly, I am not willing to live on the same level of confidence that the Nephilim are in fact angel human hybrids as confidently as I am to say the Ben Elohim are angels. So so here's here's the, the the reference in Jude, and then we'll back up to the Nephilim thing, but. In June verses uh, six and seven, it says, and the angels who did not stay within their own uh, position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the, uh, the, until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah in the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, uh, serve as an example uh, by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So here in this example, he is contrasting angels who left their, their natural and rightful dwelling and practiced in sexual immorality. And he, and he contrasts the men of Sodom who practiced a sexual immorality that was unnatural to the angels who practiced something that was unnatural. Now, there's a common objection that typically gets brought up in a passage like this, where the, the Sadducees, they were sad because they didn't believe in the resurrection, you see according to Raven They were Hill. sad, you see. They were, that's why they were sad, you see. Anyway, so the Sadducees approach Jesus, and they're like, hey, this lady gets married, her husband dies, according to the law, she has to marry the next guy down in the family bloodline, and she marries all seven of the brothers all the way down. Whose wife is she in the resurrection? And Jesus responds, hey, you foolish guys, like, don't you know that in the resurrection, there's neither giving marriage or, or giving in marriage will be like the angels. So the argumentation in response to Jude and James, or Jude in Genesis, is that, hey, Jesus said there's no sexual intercourse. That's not what it said, though. It says that there's no marriage. There's no kind of union like there is marriage here. Now, I would suggest that Jesus is male. Jesus is in heaven, and he is male, and it would be unnatural for Jesus to practice an act such as this, though he is still male in heaven. And when we go to heaven, we will represent God, both male and female. We're going to possess all of our natural organs, yet it would be unnatural for us to practice in such actions. Mm -hmm. So I'd make the case I, that angels could at least potentially have male anatomy. I, I completely agree. Let me add something to that real quick. A couple things. So one, with I'm glad you brought up the Jude text. If you didn't, I was, I was definitely wanted us to get there. Um, but one thing that's interesting is he's comparing um, in, in Jude chapter two, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, so but left their proper dwelling place. So the first thing I would say with that, liking it to uh, Jesus when they try to stump him with the woman who had seven husbands, uh, mm -hmm. one, uh, when Jesus says that people are, are neither given a marriage or, or in uh, the, the state of marriage, covenant of marriage in heaven, um, Jesus, he's, he's talking about in heaven. That's right. Uh, where these angels left their proper dwelling place. So they left heaven. So, okay. so that doesn't conflict with Jesus at all because what Jesus is doing, he's saying this is the state of uh, what, what's obviously implied is Jesus is saying this is um, the state of, of citizens in heaven who are submitted to the righteous rule of God. That, that has no bearing on rebel angels who have left their proper dwelling place. And then also, you know, uh, Jude compares, compares it just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which one thing that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah is that angels came and visited right. Lot and the mm -hmm. people of Sodom w wanted to have sex with them. That's right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, which is yeah. kind of an uncanny coincidence, you know, so anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. And it says in Jude 7 they, that they uh, likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. So uh, 
whenever he mentions fallen angels in verse six, and then he uses the word likewise, he's suggesting that fallen angels did commit sexual immorality. Uh, in fact, I would say he's not suggesting it. He's saying it clearly. And, uh, and so as weird as it is to us that apparently some kind of an, uh, an angelic being can engage in intercourse with a human being, that actually is what the text directly says. And it's what Gen- Genesis 6 uh, also teaches, if we can agree on what sons of God are, uh, that those are, in fact, angels. So uh, now that I think that we can do away with the uh, it's really weird and it can't happen, let me just speak to like practically how I think it could potentially happen. I think, Joel, this is kind of what you're going for. The the very fact that it, is it Genesis 18 or 19, I, I can't remember which, but uh, in in the Sodom and Gomorrah story, that the men if they actually carried through with their desire, you know, the angels end up blinding them and they, you know, they aren't able to have sex with the angels, but they intend to. And the suggestion of the text is that they would have. And so, and so my point is we have a scenario where sex with angels becomes a possibility. And, uh, and so it shouldn't stretch the mind too crazy. And, And when you read the text itself, the angels look and act like human beings. They're humanoid for sure. Right. They're, so they, they're like angels that have taken on some kind of human body. So in my imagination of it, not that I imagine about it too much, but anyway, in, in my estimation, we'll put it that way. I'll use a different word. In Genesis chapter six, these, these angels somehow inhabit, use the word humanoid, uh, inhabit human bodies and sleep with human women but it mixes a seed and then we'll see if that gets to Nephilim. Well, see, I, I think, yeah, I think so, with, uh, I think there's a mediated sorry. position with Peter Gentry, Peter Gentry would say um, when he comes to this text and we mentioned this in a show that we did recently kind of preparing for this. Um, it, it says, uh, and two for their wives. Yeah. Uh, and then in verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Now he looked up the phrase and also afterward uh, and every single time it was used in scripture, it means that it happened before and afterward. So he was he was using this text to suggest that the Nephilim were a place marker, that those who lived in that day, in, in Moses' time, had a lot of mythology surrounding the Nephilim. Uh, and, and hey, there's Nephilim down here uh, uh, in, in the days where they're about to inhabit Israel. Where, where are these Nephilim coming from? And he's saying, hey, look, these guys existed before the angels and afterward. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the way that Peter Gentry would argue. Now, there are other scholars such as Dr. Michael Heiser, uh, who we've had on the show multiple times, and, and many others who would go to uh, extra biblical literature, such as the Book of Enoch and other uh, uh, texts to say, what would Jewish people would have thought about Nephilim? And uh, in those texts, it seems as if the Nephilim are directly attributed to being angel-human hybrids. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know that I can, I can say with the level of confidence that I can say the sons of God are angels but would you say they probably are i could say potentially i would say i would say possibly i want to speak with a level of confidence i think the scripture does yeah i would go with probably i would agree with you that i don't think we can say definitively sure uh based on peter gentry's argument that hey this comment like like the fact that it mentions sons of god angelic angelic beings sleeping with human daughters that doesn't necessarily mean that the next verse about the nephilim is trying to communicate that these are offspring of them it right. could just be communicating this is a time marker um he has one that, other argument and that's that that, that this sentence doesn't start with and 
-hmm. And that when that almost every sentence in the Hebrew Bible starts with and, and because this doesn't start with and, it must mean that he is writing a footnote to the ahead thought. So Mm -hmm. those are his two thoughts suggesting that this is... Right. So basically, he thinks the Nephilim are mighty warriors who were tall. Yep. Now, we can all, we can agree that Nephilim were mighty warriors who were tall. Yep. Numbers tells us that. (laughs) Right. Right. yeah, in fact, the the word Nephilim is used twice in uh, in the Bible, once in Genesis six, and I think you might have mentioned this verse, Joel. In, numbers uh, thirteen, numbers 33. thirteen. Yeah, uh-huh. and on those two occasions, the Septuagint, uh, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint actually translates it as giants. Mm-hmm. And so, the reason I feel comfortable saying probably. Uh, on that the Nephilim probably were the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men is it's it seems as though the flow of the text is trying to drive us to the wickedness of man and the flood Hmm. and it seems as though the flow of the text is you have this unholy union you have the product of that unholy union giants and Nephilim and look at all the violence and craziness on the earth and you look at that throughout the scripture and it looks really bad so that would be one argument for it i think the other argument second uh, temple literature specifically first enoch it is not canonical it is not entirely it is not the word of god for us today but it does inform us upon the worldview just like i quoted and mentioned the septuagint earlier the fact that it that it was a translation into the greek it helps us that they translated it as giants, it helps you know, okay, Jewish people thought of these as giants when they're trying to figure out what and this word is. that's a fair argument, for sure. In the same way, when you quoted from uh, Jude 5 through 8 or whatever it was, uh, and it talked about these final fallen angels and held in gloomy dungeons for the day of jun- judgment, that's exactly what the book of First Enoch says. It says that these angels uh, are being stored for the day of judgment. And it's my belief that Revelation 9 actually talks about their release and uh, leading up to the judgment. That's a whole nother story. But um, point being that if this helps us crawl into their worldview, that this is the way they interpreted it, this is the way the, uh, you know, the uh, people who wrote scripture interpreted it. And uh, I, I think it makes a case for it. So putting all of that together, I feel like we could say probably, but I still wouldn't say definitively. Would you go 80%? Yeah, eighty percent, Joel. I don't right, want to so, inter- so interrupt you though, because I think let, let me hop in. Right. Yeah, no, no, that's, that all that's really good. So, um, one thing that I would say is like I appreciate what you're saying, Michael, um, and I, I would be right there with you because this I taught through Genesis about two or three years, two and a half years ago, I think, uh, when I was still in California, and I taught this text. And uh, at the time, I held to the position that it was uh, sons of God were uh, the sons of Seth, and. As of now, I, w- I would hold um, to the position of the sons of God being fallen angels. Is it because and of what we just said? It's Do we because, change your opinion yeah, on Aaron? Be- well, no, 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 I mean no, like no, just I, now. I would, just no, now did no, you change? No, I came, into, I came into this recording already with my mind changed. But, um, but uh, my, my point in saying that is because what, what you mentioned multiple times, Michael, that I think is just really good just as, as a, almost like a pastoral moment real quick for our listeners is um yeah there's weird stuff in the bible and um and the reason why why i held to the sons of seth position two and a half years ago i'm convinced knowing my heart is uh because it just sounded a lot more sane it sounded more um 
intelligent and credible. Um, and at the end of the day, I just, I want to believe what's true. I want to believe what the Bible says. Mm. It doesn't matter um, how it sounds. Amen. And God, you know, and so we got talking uh, this, donkeys. This, position, this isn't that crazy. Yeah, exactly. We have talking donkeys. Yeah. And so like, yeah. so if I was talking with an unbeliever, they're going to think I'm crazy, but you know what? They, they think everything I believe is crazy. We, we worship mm-hmm. a crucified savior that we believe bodily rose from the dead, you know? And so um, that, that just can't be an inhibitor. That, that can't be the guiding force for what Christians believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea of fallen angels. Um, now, if that contradicts scripture, then let's reject it wholeheartedly. Um, but we shouldn't reject anything because it sounds dumb. That's, that's just that, that, in, uh, that's dumb. motive like, in the heart of man is that is the fear of man. That's approval. We want yeah. the approval of man and uh, we need to recognize that as being sinful. So for any of our listeners right now who, you know, your, your view, even as you're listening to this, if your view in any way is being guided by what sounds, um, not, not most possible, that's different than what sounds most, um, acceptable, in, in, in the minds mm-hmm. of other, other Amen. people, if that's your guiding, that's a hermeneutic. And that is a, a unbiblical heretical hermeneutic. That is a wrong way of reading scripture. That's reading scripture in submission to man rather than reading scripture in submission to God. And so we want to fear God, not fear man. So I just wanted to make that pastoral point And then, and then back to the, the, the conversation at hand. So, so second Peter, cause we use the Jude text, second Peter mm-hmm. chapter two, uh, verses four through six are very similar. It says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. All right. And I'm going to pause right there. Go back to Jude, Jude chapter, uh, uh, well, chapter one, the only chapter in Jude, but verse five and six says, I want to remind you, although we once fully knew it, uh, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe, verse 6, here we are, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper, proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So verse, uh, so verse 6 of Jude and Second Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, both of them talk about this, this, these gloomy dungeons and chains and these fallen angels, uh, rebellious angels being held prisoners until the day of judgment. And so my, my question is this, um, how, if, if God casts these angels out of heaven into gloomy dungeons, it seems like there's got to be some kind of step in between. How did they have sex with human women? Because you, you know what I mean? Both Jude and Second Peter chapter 2 talk about they, they were in heaven, they left their proper dwelling place, and they're being held prisoner. Did they get out of prison? Or did they fall from heaven and they were on earth? God allowed them to be on the earth for a time until he locked them in gloomy dungeons? What, what are you guys' thoughts on that? Am I making uh, sense? Yeah, I think so. So I, I've always understood it that they departed... They did their wicked deed. And when you, when you look at the book of Jude and it connects sexual immorality with their actual fall. So they, uh, they left, they committed this, this wicked form of immorality. And as a result of that, God judged them. I feel like it's been a while since I've read first Enoch. I feel as though that is actually the sequence that it talks through it, but I, I can't quite remember. Well, I think that's the sequence in the prior text we were just in. You know, when we, we look at Jude. Oh, you're going to go back um, to the Bible, huh? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, we could talk about Enoch all day if you want to. <laughs> um, no, but see, like in Jude 5 and five through 7, see, I read 6 through 7, but if we back up, 
Um, now, I wanted to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe, right? So it's contrasting. He saves these people out who had right faith, um, and then it destroyed these people who had wrong faith. And, and then he, he goes, tells these two other stories, in addition to that, um, of, of people who were, did not have faith, and thus, because they did not have faith, were disobedient. Uh, we angels left the right place, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? These are both, this is a byproduct, and God is bringing judgment for what? Sinful actions. So again, this passage seems to imply that it's sinful actions that brings the judgment. It's the sinful actions that places them in chains. Why, what caused them oh, okay. to leave their heavenly abode? Well, they, they left their heavenly abode for these sexual actions. Um, That's how I always understood That it. was unnatural. Yeah. And thus, after that, you. they were placed in chains. So Josh, you're saying, if I understand you right, you're saying that just like Israel, there's a 40-year gap between their deliverance from, from bondage right. and slavery and then their, their destruction of that original generation of Israelites who were delivered out of Egypt 40 years later because of their unbelief, their evil actions and grumbling and complaining against God and against his prophet Moses. They were ultimately caused to die out in the wilderness. And yet there's 40 years in between that they're wandering in the wilderness and they're able to commit those sinful acts. And so we would say these angels did commit this, the sinful act of rebelling against God mm-hmm. and whatever that, that looked like. And, and therefore were removed from heaven. But perhaps the text, perhaps both Jude and Second Peter chapter 2 is saying that there's almost like, um, like two steps of sinful actions. One step that gets them booted from heaven, and, and now they're on earth, just like the Israelites for 40 years out of, out of Egypt, but not in, yet into Canaan. They're, they're in, in the wilderness wandering. And so, so too, these fallen angels, perhaps they rebelled against God, booted from heaven, but then began to rebel against God further by trying to dilute the messianic line. And God said, Oh, okay. Not only are you kicked out of heaven to, you know, like, like where I think his revelation says, but woe to you, O earth for the devil has come down to you. And, and it's so like, it's like the first progression is you rebel against God. Yeah, you're out of heaven people. on the earth. And then you rebel against God further on the earth. And so now it's almost like God saying, you're, you're too dangerous. I'm going to lock you in gloomy dungeons. And there could have been this time period Post heaven, curious if they're one in the same. I think dungeons. Yeah, that that could be the right answer, but I think it could also be one in the same. Like, why did they leave heaven? Would they leave heaven out of rebellion with Satan in Genesis one? Maybe, or or maybe they have left progressively. Maybe they have been progressively falling and rebelling. There, there's no chronological order right. in which all of the angels yeah. had to all leave at the same time. It I mean, could have been progressive. Uh, you could have an angel in heaven who looks down and goes, that's a beautiful woman, and then was in a rightful place and then left his abode to commit that same sexual act. Right. Well, and, so like I'm thinking of like, I mean, to use a human example, David and Bathsheba right. starts, he's out, he's up on top of his building, that place of pride, which is what it's the false teachers that Jude is trying to condemn here. He's talking about pride and uh, authority issues. So, but uh, but David in in this place of pride is up on top of the building, sees this woman, so he see he has her, take her taken and then he sleeps with her. Like in a sense, that's all like part of the same fall. rebellious fall that yeah. you could. And then you want to put Uriah into that too. It's like this, and it's kind of like a golf swing. How do you break it down? It's like the whole thing's a golf swing. It's like you got a back swing, you got the ball strike. I don't know. I see it as all one that he's trying because because his Sodom and Gomorrah connection seems to to strongly connect sexual immorality uh with abandoning authority so i would say that they were probably placed under chains when the earth was flooded 
Like it makes sense to me where yeah. it's like, hey, the women who practiced in these relationships with angels, they also committed sin. When did God bring judgment? When he flooded the earth. It makes mm-hmm. sense that when the human peoples were judged, that the angelic peoples were judged alongside them around the mm-hmm. same time. So that's just kind of so, the way I, I break it down. But that's just, that's, I mean, that's definitely possible. One thing that I've read is um, that they were put in chains in, in the ministry of Jesus. Um, that, you know, Jesus tells the parable of um, okay. plundering the house. You must first go and bind the strong man. And, uh, and so that, you know, and, and kind of part of this goes into the post mill position that, that I would, I would personally hold, but the idea that, um, that, you know, that you're, you're binding the strong man, Satan, no longer able to deceive the nations. And that in the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, that the strong man has been bound that, uh, that Satan is no longer able to, uh, to deceive the nations at the same degree in the same manner, uh, that he previously was, was able to do so. And so, you know, I, I've heard some guys make the argument that um, that that uh, they were roaming freely on the earth until ultimately were locked in gloomy dungeons um, by by Jesus, who bound the strong man. But but so with with that, so that gets to another question that I, that we really need to get to, which is just um, if the if the Nephilim, how, how so were the Nephilim in Numbers uh, uh, chapter thirteen verses thirty two like, through thirty three? How did they survive a flood? How did they survive a flood? So, so, so basically, the, the question is, um, if only eight persons, we, we believe the scripture, uh, we know eight persons made it through that flood. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. Now, we know that, that uh, one of Noah's sons was cursed, but he wasn't a fallen angel. He, he, he wasn't a son of mm-hmm. God. He was the literal biological son of Noah. And so he was mm-hmm. a bad man, uh, but he wasn't a bad angel. Um, and And... And we're, we're trusting that Noah, uh, that God preserved his lineage, um, he and his wife, to where Noah was not a, a hybrid um, human fallen angel, and neither was Noah's wife, and therefore neither were their three sons, and we're believing the same for uh, the three uh, wives of the sons. So how did the Nephilim make it past the flood? And maybe that gets to what you're saying, Josh, this progression of angels. Did angels fall again, perhaps, after the flood, rebel again? Or another question is, and I kind of lean towards this, were the spies in the days of Joshua and Caleb being the two good spies out of the 12, the other 10 uh, Israelite spies who brought a bad report, were they just cowards? Were they just, you know, modern evangelical Christians in America? Uh-huh. You know, like, were they, you know, like, did, <laughs> we, uh, we, we saw... They, they we said saw they're like the Nephilim, but they're really just like you know they're they were like five ten and, and just kind <laughs> yeah of got exactly them. like yeah exactly like they were maybe meatheads you know bodybuilding you know soldiers <laughs> but but they weren't the Nephilim and they just used that bringing a bad report because because they were cowardly I kind of I kind of lean towards that so number one uh, in Numbers chapter thirteen verses thirty two through thirty three do we know whether or not the Israelite spies actually saw Nephilim. Is there any certainty with that? And then what that gets to with the larger question is, did the Nephilim survive the flood? Um, and We know that the giants if, did. We, we know that, that, uh, that uh, David fought a, David there fought a, a there giant. A Philistine. Were, That's right. Goliath right. had a brother. At the end of David's there life, were, there were guys who killing giants with six fingers and snowy pits. Right, exactly. So yeah, the Anak yeah. and, his, and his lineage and Goliath, I, I believe, is a part right. of that. And Goliath Anak had mi- four brothers. Yeah, and, uh-huh. So it could be, you're right, it could, 
it could be in numbers 13 that these 10 spies who come back are cowards and that technically they didn't see Nephilim. They saw dudes who were five foot 10 and standing on a platform and they didn't get a good, good look. <laughs> they or had something. platform shoes on. Yeah. So <laughs> that could be, I would probably lean against that, but, but either way, I don't think it matters that much because like we're saying there were giants nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless. So uh, I think two theories that people throw out there and one of them you mentioned Joel, and that is, that uh angels have continued to fall and at various times and maybe not all the time maybe just like once again since, since the flood or twice who knows but that basically it happened again okay so that's one theory maybe the most popular um another one certainly less common amongst evangelical scholars conservative scholars but uh some conservative scholars will still say this that the flood was more localized and the way they get around like the whole uh it was only eight people or that uh, two things when it says like the whole world was flooded they'll they'll say well whole world's kind of a relative term to them you know paul says in colossians one the gospel's been preached throughout the whole world he doesn't mean that literally the gospel's been preached in mongolia um but it's kind of just like a general superlative term and then they'll say well and the the nephilim weren't human so there were eight people that uh eight people that made it into the ark but uh the the nephilim might have somehow survived they were standing on top it says the mountains were covered but the 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 nephilim are on their they were just on top of the mountains and and their platform shoes yeah there you go (laughs) yeah and i'm pretty sure and i'm pretty sure the uh i'm pretty sure the babylonian like flood myths or whatever talk about their their giants surviving the flood uh, go ahead. So, yeah, so I, I totally understand that. I, I would lean against that view just because, you know, God promises never to flood the earth again. And we have floods all the time. And so, so you know, one of the ways that we understand that God hasn't broken his covenant um, is that it's not a global flood. And so if it was a territorial flood, now it totally makes sense. I understand what you're point, saying, yeah. like the, the world, but if it's, that's, then, that's then I, my... I would I w- no, I, I would. know it's not. I know it's not yours. I, I, you're just saying that is, you know, what what some people believe, and and so I'm just stating for our listeners that would not be my view. Um, not not because because I I mean in terms of the word world, I'm a Calvinist, so so I'm totally down for <laughs> interpreting for the, the word world. world. You know, the world meaning you know um, every tribe, tongue, and language w- without necessarily yeah. meaning each and every individual or the known world. So I I don't have problems with those interpretations. The problem that I would have is is less of of understanding the world in that context because the word world is used in multiple different ways. I mean just John in Joe and 9 text he uses the word world in at least four different ways to describe, you know, the evil system under Satan's domain in order to uh talk about the cosmos, the physical creation in order to talk about um uh worldly people. So there's just all you know worldliness and so I'm totally down for that. But the biggest thing is um we all three of us, we, we definitely believe that God doesn't break his promises. And so for me, I, I'm not an expert on, on flood history, but from the little bit that I, I've gathered, there have been some massive floods, floods. Uh, uh, you know, of, of massive areas. And so, so then it's, it's like what, whatever God said he wasn't going to do, it seems like he's done again. One real cool thing, though, with God hanging his bow in the sky, Revelation says uh, that, that eventually he's going to take that bow back down. That it's a weapon. So God flooded the earth, destroyed everyone, um, 
and hung his bow, that it's weaponry, it's, it's, um, his war it's, bow. it's war. Yeah. It's war language. And that God, you know, that Christ, when he returns is going to take the bow back down and ride on that mm. white horse. And so I, I love that. So it's like God has in his common grace for a time is bearing with long suffering, great patience, um, sin, but he's going to take that bow back down. So anyways, uh, the last thing I, w- I was going to say with that is it also just seems to defeat the purpose because it seems like the main thing that God is doing in the flood is wiping out the Nephilim, <laughs> you know? So the idea that, you, you know what I mean? So it just seems kind of, so I, I even though I, I don't have a clear text to describe a progression of, you know, angels falling on Monday and then some more yep. following later on Tuesday, I, 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 that is easier for me to swallow because that doesn't seem to blatantly contradict anything in scripture. Right. Whereas mm-hmm. the, the other view, um, I, I'd rather, I'd rather, I'd rather take an implicit view of, of this progressive fall of angels than take what seems to be an explicitly contradicting view of God didn't actually flood the whole world. And, and, and the whole purpose of judging the world, he actually failed in because some Nephilim were able to escape. Basically, God was impotent in his attempt to judge. And there's like an additional God option. judges, he gets it done. There's one additional option to those as well, is that the, the, the Nephilim in Genesis 6 are just a time marker, like Peter Gentry said. So if it is, hey, these just happen to be giants be who live on the around. earth, right? Um, then you get... You get around all the text. It's real easy. Like, yeah, David fought a giant. Donkey talk too. There's some weird stuff. There's some. T- there's a real tall, mighty men of valor that kind it, of. His theory doesn't fight. explain where giants came from. No, but he's just kind of cool with that. He's like, yeah, there were some giants. Yeah, I mean, we got yeah. some tall people walking around today that have got like some specific Yao Ming. Yeah, dude. Y- y- <laughs> Yao Ming. Nephilim, that dude's huge. Barack Obama, though. Barack Obama, have you seen that painting? He's got a six finger. <laughs> I'm just okay, here's the thing. Here's the thing. With the, the see, even when we say Nephilim, we're prepackaging that. When I say Yao Ming's Nephilim, the prepackaged meaning is, oh, he's the the son of an angel. But see, I didn't. That's that's if you assume that definition. Right. Right. right? The 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 Nephilim show up in Genesis six. And clearly Moses, who's writing Genesis 6, know who the Nephilim are and is writing commentary on the Nephilim, right? But he doesn't give us a definition. Because we have extra biblical, we don't extra biblical text, because we have biblical text, we clearly know who the sons of God are. Um, the, the, the scriptures clearly identify them in the Old Testament. We get commentary in the New Testament from uh, apostolic writings. So we have confidence in who the Elohim are. But the Nephilim, I think that there can be some wiggle room. I think that we get to speak on them with the level of clarity that the scripture does and saying, Hey, let, they existed for sure, but we don't know how, where, or why. Let me, Confidently. I think Josh, honestly, like, but so we, we were joking earlier about like my view, you know, changing right now. I, I actually, I think it is changing right, right now. Cause I think you're making a, re- I think you're making a really compelling argument. So just reading plain reading of the text, when man began to multiply Genesis six, man began to multiply in the face of the earth, uh, face of the land and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. All three of us are agreeing. Sons of God means yep. angels. It's fallen mm-hmm. angels. So, um, but, but I think maybe we just, in our, Western minds are just, we're, we're saying that, that these things, they have to correlate when maybe they don't. So like the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So we could say fallen angels, everything we've said still holding, trying to pervert 
stop the messianic line by diluting yep. the seed of the woman. Um, that's verses one and two. Then verse three. Uh, so the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. Uh, his day shall be 120 years real quick. My, my view on that is not, well, Moses lived to be 120 years and that's what this is talking about. And Kenneth Copeland, he's going to be 120. I don't, I don't <laughs> believe that. Um, he, he makes that claim. Um, but, uh, what I do believe about verse three is that, that basically my, my view is that um, these sons of God, fallen angels, came to the earth um, approximately 120 years before mm. God sent the flood. Um, so that's, that's my view. And, and that lines up with other uh, texts in Genesis. For instance, it took about 100 years, we know from Scripture, for Noah just even to build the ark. And so it was a 120-year period of Noah. And Noah was a herolder. Noah was a preacher. Right. Okay. He, so he was a herald,er of righteousness. And there's a sense in which Christ preached. So that's now instead of second Peter chapter two, that's first Peter. Christ preached to uh, spirits in dungeons. And, and so I, I don't believe in a descent to, to hell, but a, a descent when Jesus died to Hades, um, to Sheol, to the grave. And so I don't believe that Christ um, himself, but I believe the spirit of Christ through Noah was preaching for approximately 120 years, a hundred of that during the building of the ark to the wicked hybrid generation of, of fallen angels, sons of God and women um, preaching repentance. They, they did not uh, listen. And so verse three, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. So because fallen angels were polluting the, the messianic line where the seed, the serpent crusher was going to come. God said, all right, that's enough of that. This is, this is not going to go on forever. 120 years, not each individual man's going to live for 120 years or 120 years is going to be the cap of man's lifespan, but rather 120 years until I destroy everyone through the mm-hmm. flood. And then verse four, it says, it almost seems like it's like changing subjects. You know, it's like, all right, verse one through three, Got that. Now verse four. Oh, also, by the way, the Nephilim were on the earth during those days. And also afterwards when the sons of God came in. And, and so it, it could be like the Nephilim were on the earth in those days because they came from the sons of God, um, uh, having sex with daughters of men and bore children to them. And so we're, we're just reading in verse four. We're reading Nephilim are those children born right. by the daughters of man and sons of God. Whereas it could very well be saying the Nephilim happened to be there too. And right. So, so then the Nephilim, that, go you're, you're familiar with that passage in Genesis where he says the garden, which was East of Eden. Wait, so some people have postulated, okay, well then there's, that means there was a city in Eden and the God made an entire city. And then East of that, he built Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve aren't the father of all. Well, whoa, 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 settle down. So what if Moses was just saying, this is a geographical place that my readers are familiar with. And it was East of this place that my readers are familiar with. Not that God had literally created a city and then created a temple with people in it. What if he's just using this as a time marker or a space marker to inform his specific audience? That, that's what yeah, the, the Peter I, I think for me, is. I just think that contextually, if this is all driving toward the flood and wickedness, like, why would he mention this random thing? It just does, got, like it, it no seems like a it. well. It I don't like think it's random. It seems like a point foot, pointless footnote. It doesn't do, it doesn't do anything. Uh, whereas if you start with in verse two, the sons of God, they uh, they took the daughters of of women as wives, so they went into them. So there's sexual intercourse in verse two, and then in verse four, it's not only intercourse but the bearing of children. It seems to be a continuous flow of thought driving down to them bearing of children. And so with the Nephilim, 
listed right in the middle of that, it seems that the Nephilim would be those children. Again, I'm not saying definitively. I'm just saying sure. seems. Yeah. Well, I'm with you, Michael. I, I definitely think that makes sense. And I probably I, – I feel like right now I'm kind of just torn like in the middle. I think I can totally see that being it. But I don't think it – I don't think the alternative view means that, that verse 4 would be random. I see it as like verse 4 still has a ton of significance because it's saying all the more reason for the flood. There are two reasons for the flood. Um, whereas you're saying there's one reason son, sons of God being fallen angels had sex with the daughters of men and produced the Nephilim. And we got to wipe that out. Whereas you could say verse four is still significant with the other view saying there's two reasons. There's the sons of God trying to disrupt the messianic line, um, the fallen angels. And there's the Nephilim who are not necessarily the hybrid offspring of fallen angels and man, but they are men of renown. They are giants. Like like Goliath and Anak and um, and and in this state where fallen angels are influencing people, um, giants that much physical prowess and capacity with with unchecked depravity, right? That like heading towards from total depravity, heading outward manifestations towards utter depravity. Uh, I would imagine giants could do a lot of damage, even more violence if you're ten feet tall than than someone who's five foot ten yeah, and so especially because like if you consider that they were all like right all right there's a sarcasm union between sons of god you can tell his sarcasm voice i couldn't as soon as he years. said as soon as he said the word yeah, yeah i've known michael for 13 years as soon as he said yeah i was like okay he's gonna make fun of me you on my what? show Dude, <laughs> no respect. It, took, it took josh like three or four months to it figure did. it out and he's like like, what uh, are you and saying? then, and then, <laughs> he, once he got it, now he can't unget it. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, that that was awesome. Let's go ahead and end this episode. I expected um, you to you talk trash let... back. You were just like, no, you, no, you're no. Holding it's on. good. It's good. Well, I, I talking trash takes time because if I talk trash, then you're going to talk trash, and then we're <laughs> going to be here for thirty more minutes, and everyone's going to be bored. So let's go ahead and land the plane. I'm going to be the bigger man who doesn't talk trash, which ironically is me I talking won. trash. So, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> this is I won. So this is how I want to end it. You guys, uh, let our listeners know uh, how they can follow you and uh, what, how they can, you know, what, what, how can they keep up with you and, and what some of the stuff you guys got in the pipeline. And then our listeners, make sure you, every time you listen to Remnant Radio, come back and listen to me two times just to make sure that they're not uh, screwing with your mind, getting some weird guest on that show. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah. So guys, uh, check us out, Remnant Radio, The Remnant Radio uh, on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. YouTube's the our website, biggest, but website, yeah, check it all YouTube out. YouTube is the place. We're on podcasting platforms and everything else. Uh, and like Joel said earlier, man, there are going to be people on our show that you're going to disagree with uh, because we interview everyone from across the spectrum, uh, Lutherans, Anglicans, Methodists, and, and we disagree with. Yeah, many of them we disagree with. Uh, there are guys, uh, probably one or two guys we've interviewed that we didn't even know were orthodox, and the reason we did the interview was to ask those kinds of essential orthodox kinds of questions. Jesus, the son of God, is he divine? Those kinds of things. Uh, man, I think it's a great place to kind of maybe break outside of the normal things you've been listening to and, and find out what other traditions uh, have to say about a matter. I mean, heck, I think the Lutheran tradition has a lot to add to the Christian faith. And they've kind of been their own corner of Protestantism for a very long time. And I think that we could glean a lot from them. Yeah. And uh, if you name like one of the well-known Bible scholars or pastors, theologians from around the world, we have probably interviewed them. Yeah. And, uh, and so 
So we do interviews on Wednesday. We do do a show on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and that's less interview, more just right now we're talking through various revivals. You did an episode, yep. we did an episode on the Brownsville revival. Uh, and so, but we, we do it in a way that we're, we're thinking critically. Uh, I mean, you just heard us for whatever hour and a half or whatever this was. We think biblically, theologically, exegetically, all the things. Um, and so we do have a Wednesday show on that. We're starting a new one on that's church right. history. Uh, a new episode coming up soon, but basically it gives the spirit church history and then theology across the spectrum. We'll do episodes on the atonement. We'll do uh, an, an atonement theory. We'll do episodes on new perspective of Paul and, uh, and then the biblical version of the old perspective of Paul. There you go. Mm-hmm. Right. But Amen. so, um, Amen. but we'll talk <laughs> about all of it. We'll talk about all of it. And then, uh, and so it's just a helpful, it, like you said at the beginning of the show, uh, Joel, it. Uh, busts out of your theological echo chamber, helps you think of, think in some new ways yeah. uh, in, in a safe sp- space that is orthodox. Safe space. Joel loves that word. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> well, no, I appreciate, I appreciate what you guys have done. Like one of the things that Remnant Radio blessed me with was, um, apart from just Michael's you know, long-term friendship, but uh, you guys connected me. Well, you didn't even mean to do this. He just kind of picked up on it. But through you guys, you connected me with Leighton Flowers. And oh, yeah. it was good, not because I uh, changed my view, um, but it was good because I just, I remember talking to you, Michael, about it. You know, like Leighton picked up on an episode I did with you guys with Calvinism and he started critiquing it. Um, because, you know, he can only, you know, he's, you can only critique James White so many times, you know, and so Leighton, Leighton needed to find someone else, you know, to, <laughs> the show must go on, you know? So anyway, so he found my episode that I did with you guys and started critiquing me. And then you guys let me do a response to him. And then that culminated in a debate. And, uh, my point is just to say that, uh, I remember talking to you about it, Michael, you know, um, after the debate and debriefing with you and, you know, it was like, I didn't change my views. But, um, but I just realized, man, it had been like five, six, seven years since I had really like gotten in the ring and sparred with someone over total depravity. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. because I like the it's further you issue. go, exactly. The further yeah. you go in, in, in your life, in anything, spiritual, theological, in anything, your, your career path, the, the further you go, the, the more you get people who are like you yeah. specialized exactly and and the less you interact with you know so like i you know like there're just certain things that used to be regular i was always having these conversations because i was first coming into a view which means all the relationships in my life my family my friends everybody were were still in my old view and i'm coming out of that view into a new view like calvinism and i'm having to defend this change in me to all of my friends and so i'm being but what about this or what about this and the problem of evil and you know what about free will and and um and i remember when that was just like every day i was living and breathing those kinds of conversations it was an argument every single day about free will and an argument every single day. And it wasn't just because I was a cage Calvinist and arrogant. Part of it is just the practical relational context of coming out of one view where you've been surrounded with all those friends into another view. But then the, the point is you, you come into this new view and if you stick with it and you go down that path, yes, you're growing. Yes, you're learning. But one thing that you're losing is um, opposition. And, and so it is helpful. I think ministries like yours uh, I think people need discernment and I think you guys help as kind of, you know, like, like, like bowling with, um, with bumpers, you know, keeping people from falling into like just straight up heretical gutter. But, um, so you guys help in the way that you host your show, protecting your listeners from, from just completely unorthodox views. 
But I think the listener still needs to exercise a lot of biblical discernment. But one of the benefits is um, that, yeah, there could be some confusion. know for sure what orthodoxy is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Well, yeah. But one of of the benefits, my point is to say one of the benefits is that um, a lot of times we we don't spar and we get flabby and we get soft. And uh, and that's been helpful for me. So anyways, thanks, you guys, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Hey God man, it's you. always an honor. I enjoyed uh, enjoyed being on, man. Yeah, thank you for your ministry. Cool. We appreciate yeah. what you're doing. As a special thank you for your gift of any amount, we'll be happy to send you a free digital book from our store. To access this offer, visit rightresponseministries.com/offer. We highly recommend Pastor Joel's book, Am I Truly Saved? If you or someone you know has wrestled with doubts about the love of God, this would be a great resource. As a reminder, to get this offer, go to rightresponseministries.com slash offer. And thank you for your generous support.